0: Blog Talk Radio Welcome to the Gluten-Free Voice. I am your host. I'm Jules Shepard, and I'm really honored to be here today with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Dr. Alessio Fasano. He is a dear friend, but also has been instrumental in my personal health and the health of so many people I know and who I've referred him to. So for those of you who are not aware of Dr. Fasano and his place in the celiac world, he is one of, if not the foremost expert on celiac disease, I say he's the foremost, but I know some people say one of, I'm going to say he's the foremost, but um, he has been around since the beginning of celiac disease awareness in the United States, and in fact, if it wasn't for his epidemiological study, putting celiac disease on the map in the U.S. and in um, really in the world in general, we would not know that at least one in 133 people has celiac disease. It used to be thought that it was one in 10,000 people and no one was paying attention to it. And so Dr. Fasano really is the one who brought it to the fore and said, actually, no, there are so many more people here who are suffering with celiac disease, we need to pay attention to it. And with that, he also developed a test for celiac disease, a serology that I'm sure many of you who are listening today have um, taken that blood test. It's now available in labs across the country. Anywhere you wanted to go, they have that test. And he has been instrumental in leading all sorts of new research studies, trying to determine when's the best time to introduce gluten for people, um, how many other people have it, and, and actually figuring out that more people have it even than they thought originally. And even more exciting, I think at this point, is a leader in the research of um, the diagnosis for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Dr. Vasano moved from the University of Maryland where he founded the Center for Celiac Research He moved to the um, Mass General Hospital for Children last year, and if you are a follower of my show, you probably have listened to a couple of the radio shows we did um, after his move there to announce what exciting things that they had planned with this move. So we're definitely going to catch up with Dr. Pisano today on where things have come since the move. But because it's Celiac Awareness Month, I thought it was the perfect time to invite Dr. Pisano back on the show. And without further ado, welcome. Thank you for taking some time out of your very, very busy day to join us again today.
1: Jules, it's my pleasure all the time to be on your show, and, and again, you've been too kind in terms of the introduction, but thank you so much.
0: Well, that's fine. I I'm, I'm love introducing you because I, I could go on forever, and I love um, talking about you in the best possible way when you're not around, but um, the other thing <laughs> I failed to mention in my introduction is that Dr. Fasano has just put out his first book, and it's called Gluten Freedom. You can now, I believe you can get it on the bookshelves. Is that correct? It's available now? That's right. Yeah, well, it's very exciting because this is Dr. Fasano, and again, they say the nation's leading expert, so I'm not the only one, offering the Essential Guide to a Healthy, Gluten-Free Lifestyle, and um, in the spirit of full disclosure, I was a contributor to the book, but um, there are plenty of other wonderful contributors, and Dr. Fasano was the author of the entire book, and he talks about you know, really from the doctor's perspective, but how to be a successful patient, um, finding out that you have celiac disease or that you need to go gluten-free. And it's a really groundbreaking book because he shares all of his insights for people who don't have the ability to get to see him as a clinician. You can really get a feel for his attitude and his take on the disease, and also how to live well um, living gluten-free. So I'm thrilled that the book is out. You can look for it again on the bookshelves. It's called Gluten Freedom, and it's published by Wiley. So it will be widely available. So congratulations on putting that book out. It was a, a labor of love over the course of many years.
1: That's right. Thank you so much. Indeed, it was. Uh, This really put me out of comfort zone. While I write, you know, scientific books uh, rather routinely, this was the very, very first uh, book uh, for lay people. I know that you're a pro in the field and the reason why we decided as, a, as, a, as an entire group at the Center for City Research to do something like this because you know we create the issue and with that we probably fuel a little bit of uh, what is currently a tremendous confusion between facts and fantasies so we really believed there was the time to step in and, and write, you know, the real truth of, of gluten-related disorders and who and why people did need to go on a gluten-free diet so that we avoid all this confusion. And again, this was done, uh, as you mentioned, as an, uh, a group effort so that it not only come from the perspective of the uh, scientists and, and, and the clinician dealing with gluten-related disorders, but also from the people like you that live the experience on a daily life.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that's, it really is interesting to look at it from all those different perspectives all in the same book. And that's why I think it's going to be really, really well received by the community. And, and I really hope that clinicians read it as well. As you said, it's not, you know, the typical book that, that you would be writing in your papers, you know, one clinician to another, but it's a perspective that physicians all need um, to understand the patient perspective and to understand that it's more than just a lab test and it's more than, um, you know, just something that's uh, then abstract on paper. There's so much more to it than that. So having called that information from experts at all levels, um, as you did in this book, I think is extremely valuable resource
1: yeah this was written indeed Uh, uh, keep in mind that we wanted the broadest uh, readership possible not just for patients but also for people they have a general interest to understand you know if they need to go gluten-free for healthcare professionals not just physicians, but dietitians uh, and nurses uh, and, and students that deal with this kind of stuff that they want to know how this all came about and you know what are the scientific evidence and if you have to go gluten-free what is the best way to implement the diet
0: right right well and i i hope people do take the opportunity to um to look for because I think it's going to be super helpful to folks. Um, Well, Jumping right in, and you and I have chatted about this already because this has been something that came out recently, I think, you know, with Celiac Awareness Month, people in the mainstream media are looking for stories and they want to talk about it so that that they have something that's, you know, newsworthy to discuss. And one of the things that came out last week, and it was republished um, even in publications such as Forbes, was this study that was done that I think really um, has caused a lot of confusion, and I would love to have some clarity from your perspective on it. And the study that I'm referring to was out of Australia, and they were looking at the diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity and whether or not it actually, A, exists, and B, whether it's not just something that is masking for another problem related to other diet dietitian or dietetic intakes, like the FODMAP diet, things like that. I wondered if you could sort of clarify what you know about the clinical trial first, but also speak to that FODMAP issue that people talk about a lot, the um, fermentable, poorly absorbed, short-chain carbohydrates diet that has caused a lot of people some um, gastrointestinal distress and maybe is linked to IBS or other things, but whether or not that is something people should be considering if they think maybe they do have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Is it something else. Maybe maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Could you speak to that a little bit and educate us all in the process?
1: Sure, and this is indeed one of the point of confusion that we're trying to clarify by writing this book. Uh, You have also to appreciate that you know non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or gluten sensitivity for short, is the new kid on the block. I mean, you know, this is like 20 years ago uh, with celiac disease. We have very few information, and we're in a major learning process. So the first issue was indeed does it really exist? I mean, before that we even conceptualized the existence of this entity, the paradigm was if something is wrong with you by eating gluten you have to have celiac disease and if celiac disease has been ruled out you have no business to be on a gluten free diet and and, and when uh, you know this new entity was put on a table and this was Three four years ago, okay, um, and we were among, you know, the centers that led the, this, this uh, discovery, quote-unquote, already discovery better um, words of this new entity, um, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. So at the beginning, as you correctly mentioned, the um, you know, the debate was does this exist or not? In the past four years, we've seen many things happening, uh, three consensus conferences to discuss about the matter. These studies out of Australia, there have been now three studies from this group. They're all very interesting that, again, there's been a swing of confusion and confirmation and so on and so forth. But all this to say that now the discussion is not anymore, does this exist or not? Everybody agrees that this exists. The question is, what is this? What is exactly this? How frequent it is? How do you unnose it? And what really triggers the symptoms is gluten, is FODMAP, is other stuff in wheat. What is indeed that makes these people to develop symptoms when they ingest gluten um, you know, uh grains? Now, part of the confusion that's been generated also by these studies come from Australia stems from a lack of understanding and agreement of terminology, because I believe that this is Hmm. the first thing that we have to put on the table, and then we can discuss about the clinical trials from Australia in a little bit more in details. Again, uh, we need to really understand what we are discussing here, because, for example, there are people that use you know, the term intolerance and sensitivity as synonymous, uh, and they didn't interchange that and they are tremendously different. So we need to agree, first of all, what we're talking Hmm. about, a food intolerance is an intolerance to food stuff that we can not digest properly, or that we ingest in large amount that we cannot handle correctly. A uh, mm-hmm. classical example lactose intolerance you, you know we are intolerance to lactose the sugar in milk uh, if we don't have the enzymes to break down the sugar in the single elements and we develop symptoms FODMAPs is another classical food intolerance. So in other words, we use, you know, to eat these uh, products, this foodstuff, enrich these sugars that we cannot completely digest and bring in and therefore are fermented by the bacteria, the microflora that lives in our guts. And the final product can be gas and this will, you know, trigger IBS like symptoms. These are the classical, you know, examples of intolerance. Mm-hmm. sensitivity on the other hand is an immune response to a specific elements in foods particularly proteins so gluten sensitivity non celiac gluten sensitivity is the immune response to um, you know gluten or other wheat containing elements so that's that's the major difference so with that in mind let's review these clinical trials the first one that came out from uh, the uh, group from Australia was a double-blind clinical trials in which they really put on a map the fact that gluten was the trigger of gluten sensitivity. So they took these people, they were supposedly diagnosed with uh, gluten sensitivity based on specific criteria, and they in a double-blind fashion, meaning they, they the operator, i.e. the scientists didn't know, the patients didn't know, they received either additional, um, in a gluten free diet, they, they receive either, you know, a placebo that was starch or gluten and they found that the one they received gluten were the ones that got sick. So they said, yes, exists and it's gluten the culprit. Then a year and a half later, they, you know, published another paper in which they said, well, sorry, we were wrong. was not the gluten component in uh, uh, wheat that triggered the symptoms, rather were the FODMAPs. And they did a study showing that indeed was the FODMAPs in triggered the symptoms. So what was the problem with this study? That where they were studying were not people with gluten sensitivity, rather they were people with IBS. So there were mm. people that had symptoms of IBS like bloating, gas, diarrhea, and or constipation, and therefore FODMAPs turn to be the culprit for their symptoms. Once again, the current definition right now for gluten sensitivity is the following. These are individuals that react to the ingestion of gluten-containing grains with signs or symptoms that can be not only intestinal, but also extra intestinal like foggy mind, headaches, joint pain, and so on and so forth, whose symptoms will go away when they eliminate gluten-containing grains from their diet. With that definition in mind, what these people, what these colleagues for Australia look at could not be gluten sensitivity because when you eliminate gluten-containing grains from your diet, you ingest still a large amount of phone maps. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the grains are not the largest, you know, source of maps. Uh, You know, fruits, vegetables, honey, uh, those are the much more rich in maps. So the fact that these people resolved their symptoms, despite that they continue to eat this other fodmaps containing food stuff, really cast a doubt that they were looking in the right direction. <laughs> then, three weeks ago, the same group again changed again their mind by publishing a paper in which said well we were wrong it is indeed gluten to trigger symptoms because this time they did not study people with IBS rather gluten-sensitive whose main symptoms were depression and putting them on a gluten-free diet they claimed that their depression improved so all this to say, there is a tremendous amount of confusion on, on, on the topic and, and mainly due to the fact that, you know, definition uh, of what gluten sensitivity is, difference between food intolerance and food sensitivities needs to be really taken care, uh, taking in consideration to really understand what we're talking about here.
0: Wow. That's a lot of information <laughs> you packed in there, but yeah. it's really amazing when you break it down like that and see that it's not that what they're saying is wrong necessarily if you're talking about the correct terminology and who they're really talking about studying. And there has been a lot of talk about FODMAPs and whether or not reduction of um, those types of fermentable you know, foods in your diet would would alleviate some of the symptoms, and perhaps for some people it would, but that's not you know, the, the be-all, end-all for someone who does have the condition of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, backing up for a second, though, because one of the first statements you made is that, you know, we all agree now that gluten sensitivity, non-celiac gluten sensitivity exists. But just a few short years ago, that was not the case. Could you just describe how it came to be that we are are now able to say there is such a diagnosis as non-celiac gluten sensitivity because, I mean, really, honestly, there are so many people out there who were so relieved when the scientific community finally acknowledged right. that, that this existed because they felt like they were second-class citizens. You know, you don't have celiac disease, yeah. so you don't have to eat gluten-free, but they knew the gluten was, was what was causing their problems. So to have that diagnosis has just been an amazing relief for people, but it didn't come easily. I mean, maybe you could explain us yeah. as to how that happened.
1: Well, that's the classical example. that listen to to the patients is the most important operation and, and activity that a, a, a clinician should really keep in mind the scientists by the way you know we we give us rules or, or you know guidelines they become dogma uh, and we lose the the sense that these guidelines um, um, are meant to be you know a it's something that is dynamic. As a matter of fact, many times we change the guidelines when we learn more about a specific condition. Uh, so, um, you know, the rigid mind, the closed mind, when we said, you know, the guidelines of the dogma is that if you have a problem with gluten, you have to have celiac disease, stems from the fact that we gave this kind of rule to ourselves, so to speak. And, and I have to say that I'm, I was among the people that were very skeptical that gluten can give problems outside city disease. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a good clinician, a good scientist is also the one that will admit to be wrong and not to stay (sighs) rigid with the preconcepts and say, because I say so has to be so. Um, but, you know, right. that's the beauty of our job, you know, the medical knowledge change every five years completely. And, and you know, you answer one question, you open another 10. And you know, this came about because, you know, when when we start to realize that there were critical mass of people coming to our clinic uh, claiming that they were sick when eating gluten and this was the consequence of the increased awareness about celiac disease. At the beginning, we thought that this was a placebo effect, where people that were really, you know, um, uh, biased toward this and so on and so forth. But the critical mass of people that start to come to our clinic, claiming that they were sick (coughs) when ingesting gluten, they were not sick, became so large that we were pretty much forced to look into this, and that's why we realized that indeed there was probably something true about the fact that gluten can. trigger symptoms even outside the cedar disease you know boundaries and mm-hmm. uh, you know from there we start to ask our specific question what is this where are the mechanisms leading to this what kind of you know differences if any there are between cedar disease and this other entity that seems to be real and that's them us you know to do a lot of studies and publish three or four papers and we start to really identify the machinery that's involved, that in the immune system. Uh, they are similar but not identical to celiac disease, and that's the reason why, for example, people with gluten sensitivity do not have a damage to the intestine that characterizes celiac right. disease because they don't have an autoimmune response to gluten. And you know, other groups, uh, particular groups from Germany, uh, confirmed our findings. And now, uh, you know, the next frontier is to find and validate biomarkers. I Tests for gluten sensitivity because right now we don't have any and therefore our diagnosis is based by exclusion criteria right now
0: Well, yeah, and that's one of the main things that I've been receiving questions about in anticipation of the show today Is people say how long are we gonna have to wait for this? You know, I know that that there is research being done at Mass General through you and and through others as well trying to find a test Where where do you think that, that the future lies with that because you're right right now? It's just a diagnosis of exclusion
1: yeah, we, uh, you know, again, uh, been embarking this almost a year and a half ago, <clears throat> and in order to identify and validate the biomarkers uh, for a disease like this, you have to make sure that you're dealing with people that truly have gluten sensitivity and not a placebo effect or respond to a diet just because it's healthier. Uh, so mm-hmm. we have to do this in a double-blind fashion so that we can, of the people that we're recruiting, uh, we have to... Um, distinguish those that truly respond to gluten and only on those try to identify really these biomarkers. So we are three-quarters away, so to speak. Uh, we almost uh, recruited 90 people. We have to recruit 110. And, you know, when, then we have to do all the analysis. We have to break the bl- blind and then we can find out, you know, uh, if we identify biomarker or biomarkers, plural, um, and, and, and then apply those. In the, you know for the large population studies to answer the question "How many folks they have gluten sensitivity because this is another very sore and debated subject. you know some people they say the extremely rare some people say the hundred percent of the population is gluten sensitive and everything in between.
0: Yeah. Well, so you're recruiting for the studies now. Is there, um, if someone would like to participate in the study, is there some place that they should go for information?
1: Yep. Uh, If you go on our website uh, of our uh, SELIC Center, you will find information about this clinical trial. And if you're interested, definitely you can sign up for it.
0: Okay. And um, do you happen to have that URL for the Celiac Center now at Edna Well, Mass we,
1: we still have uh, the same. That is uh, www.celiaccenter.org. Mm-hmm. That will re- d- re, uh, you know, address you. um sure. You know, uh, to It'll our. reroute URL. you to the new mm-hmm.
0: page. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. So, celiaccenter.org, and people that's can find right. out information about that study and participating in the study. Do they need to be uh, resident um, of the Boston area to participate?
1: Well, ideally, because this is a, a, you know, a three-week trial, this should be, you know, in the uh, Boston, New England area. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, um, along the same lines of what we've been talking about with the non-celiac gluten sensitivity, some of the questions that we received um, for you we're really surrounding you know a little bit more of an understanding of what it is and what it can cause and one of the readers asked can gluten sensitivity cause issues like swollen joints Raynaud's syndrome and infrequent menstrual cycles
1: well again for what we understand uh the, the way that this comes about is that, you know, the the early steps are the same uh, that, you know, people with see the disease will eventually experience. So you eat gluten containing grains, they are incompletely digested. They come through because the intestine become leakier mainly to for release of this molecule that makes intestine leakier, this zone. And then at that point, depending who you are, the destiny is different. You know, the immune cells who see this enemy come through and they start to be. Uh, you know uh, armed to fight against this invader Uh, if the immune cells will deploy their weaponry locally so they they stay there they create collateral damage that we call inflammation and they develop GI symptoms Um, and this can be associated or not to the damage depending if you have you know the 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 genetic predisposition to develop senior disease or gluten sensitivity But if these cells, they're armed, they leave the intestine and go somewhere else, they can give you extra intestinal symptoms. So we know that people with gluten sensitivity can have joint pain with or without swelling. We know that they can have, you know, uh, neurological symptoms uh, like headaches, uh, you know, anxiety. They can go all the way to, you know, schizophrenia and so on and so forth. We know that also they can have other issues in terms of... uh, Neurological symptoms like peripheral neuropathy and so on and so forth, mm. Anecdotal report about menstrual irregularities, and this can be due to so many things. So it is very difficult in that direction to be too assertive because okay. you know while the skin rash and and the foggy mind and the headaches and the GI symptoms have been clearly associated with sensitivity. Uh, other less frequent conditions, like the one that you mentioned, uh, like uh, f- menstrual regularities, is something that is st- still a work in progress. Remember, we're moving the first steps in this uh, new, uh, you know, entity, and therefore, you know, we can't mm-hmm. really have all the answers yet.
0: And I know with gluten sensitivity, because it does not cause the intestinal damage that you see with celiac disease, um, there must be a difference in time to resolve those types of symptoms that folks would, um, would have from ingesting gluten if they have gluten sensitivity. And one of the questions we got was, you know, let's say that you don't have celiac, but you do have gluten sensitivity and you have resulting symptoms like the ones you've just described. How long would it take to resolve those symptoms in a person with gluten sensitivity once they remove gluten from their diet?
1: In general, this is a rule with a lot of exceptions. The resolution of mm-hmm. the symptoms of people that they, they experience gluten sensitivity is faster than people with see disease, but there are a lot of exceptions there. So, and, and also depends on the kind of symptoms. So if we have GI mm-hmm. symptoms, the expectation is the symptoms go away in a matter of days. If there's joint pain and swelling, it will take longer. If there's peripheral neuropathy, it can take three or four months. I mean, wow. but, but these are rules with a lot of exceptions. Why symptoms with related to celiac disease may take, you know, months and months to go away. Wow. Okay. The the distinctive the factor, though, is what happens to you if once you control your symptoms, are you exposed to gluten? There, we have a much clearer picture. For celiac sufferers, sometimes you don't relapse with symptoms for months, if not years. Uh, For Mm gluten sensitivity, it's always a matter of days, if not hours. It's much faster. Hmm.
0: Well, and it makes sense when you understand physiologically what's going on. I mean, the gut has to heal for a celiac in order for them to then experience the um, resolution of symptoms. Yeah.
1: Okay. Not Um, only that, but also when you reignite the problem, the chain of events that leads to celiac disease, you know, autoimmunity is much, much longer than the chain of events for the immediate immune response that people with gluten sensitivity they experience. That's the reason why when we're exposed to gluten you relapse immediately, almost immediate gluten sensitivity can take much longer with severe disease.
0: Yeah. Um and you know there's <laughs> it's interesting that you that you pointed that out because that was on the list of questions I was going to ask you as well because I get this a lot. Um, you know, folks who do have celiac disease like I do, um, ha- we, we all sort of anecdotally have noticed that the longer you've been gluten-free, the more immediately you react to gluten exposure and the more severely you react to gluten exposure. But there doesn't seem to be a scientific study that backs that up. It just feels like that's what always happens. But you yeah, sort of true. described it there.
1: Yep, true, very true. Uh, you know, the rational is now clear, but, you know, many people believe that once the immune system is not, you know, um, exposed to gluten for a long time, it is really is not trained to really be gentle, so to speak, when gluten comes through. And by the time that you're re-exposed to gluten, you go all in, and that creates mm-hmm. this massive you know, surge of an immune response. But again, we, this is just uh, working at a this. I don't think that anybody has clear evidence that that's the case.
0: Okay, we'll put that on your list for the next study that you need to do. Sure. <laughs> we, we all sure. want to know. <laughs>
1: What yeah, is the physiological
0: yeah. reason for that, but it, it truly it feels like you know i've had people ask me over the years you know it feels like this is what's going on and this is what's happening isn't this true? and I just have to say you know I would agree with you personally because that's been the case with me as you well know I mean I, when I am exposed to gluten it's never pretty um, and it's always a new symptom and it's it's pretty amazing um, how my body just goes absolutely crazy if I get exposed to gluten and I hear from people every day who are the same way, and yet we each in our own way you know we're we're handling the exposure to gluten prior to our diagnoses, diagnoses to a certain extent. We were handling it without these symptoms, and they, they come back in a, um, in a strange way and, and very severe and very rapid. So um, that's interesting to hear you you say that. So thank you for explaining that a little bit more. Um, back sure. to the issue of celiac, another question. You know, we've been talking about the testing for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. What about um, what's on the the I guess the horizon for celiac disease I know there are so many therapies that are in testing mode right now um, from you and from others Um, the clinical trials that are out there for drug therapies vaccines you know could you sort of update us on where things stand for the future of folks with celiac disease and for the prevention of celiac disease
1: Sure indeed, these are the two major areas you know to treat CD disease for the ones they already have it, and then eventually to develop strategies to prevent it. so these are two major you know pipelines of research that now is becoming you know really interesting because they are coming into the most exciting uh, point of, uh, of 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 uh, exploitation here so for the treatment, um, you know uh, over the years, why is this at the beginning starting you know roughly in 2005 when we start to have really the possibility of alternative or, or what I would like to say integrative treatment for celiac disease start to see light. At the beginning we thought there was mainly a purely a, a, a scientific exercise with you know rather limited you know clinical applicability given the fact that we know that the gluten-free diet is extremely safe and extremely efficacious in controlling celiac disease. Um, but you know two things really in the last few years became extremely clear to us both as a scientist as clinicians one of course the bottom line for what we do is quality of life and people they start to be questioned more uh, in more details about the quality of life they clearly voiced the frustration of a, a not ideal quality of life despite the availability and palatability of gluten-free products improved dramatically in the past few years. The other thing that also and for maybe even more uh, prompt, you know, the rationale for these other treatments is the recognition that despite a good compliance of the gluten-free diet, a large number of individuals will still have damage in the intestine with or without symptoms. And that's very frustrating because the number is non-negligible. Now, the last figures that I've seen out there will talk about 30 40%. So, you know, a large proportion of individuals, they are religiously gluten-free. They still have damaged intestines. So this really provides now much more rational for this kind of alternative or integrative uh, treatment uh, to be used in conjunction of the gluten-free diet. Now, there are many... Uh, strategies out there and they are in different uh, stage of evolution in terms of clinical trial. Um, and again, uh, you know, there are different strategies. Uh, one is focused on completed digestion of gluten so that would we'll become not toxic. And that's the reason, um, you know, the rationale is because as I mentioned before, we as human beings cannot completely digest gluten and uh, some bacteria, they can generate enzymes, they can do that. <clears throat> so some companies use this enzyme for bacteria to eventually <coughs> detoxify gluten completely and prevent the problem when you ingest it and the mm. clinical trials and are you know are going forward they, they made progress this are now in phase two initial phase two and then I'm now recruited for a second phase two uh, trial and this is mainly the technology that Alvine of other California is using there are others uh, that are at early st- earlier stage of uh, you know development uh, Uh, particularly the ones to block uh, the the tissue transglutaminase to arm, so to speak, gluten. Uh, There are others that are focused on immunosuppressants um, and uh, others yet that uh, have been using parasites to uh, calm down the immune system. Um, Now, the vaccine that will be the only grail to re-educate the immune system to tolerate gluten also is moving along, but at a very, very early stage. And of all the technologies, um, is the one is much more complicated than the other. So this will take much longer. Last and uh, not least, uh, and I purposely left for last, is this technology that is focused on trying to uh, you know, counterbalance this increased permeability triggered by gluten. The reason why I left for last because this is the one that's most advanced of all, just finished the last phase 2 trial successfully. At the recent uh, Digestive Disease Week, uh, they present officially the data showing that this uh, inhibitor of this molecule, Zonulin, that they call lorazoiditis, has been extremely effective in uh, um, ameliorated symptoms when you ingest gluten. As a celiac individual, and uh, the, 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 they claim that the data are so uh, you know um, you know compelling, they are ready to start the final phase three trial. So this is probably the the one technology that, if pinned to be effective, will see um, you know application in the market sooner than the others.
0: And by that, and, and I think people need to understand soon. In in this world, is not soon and you know no. the normal lay person's world but you're talking no, about no. you're, you you're talking
1: about I don't know. I, you know the, 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 the there is there are so many variables that will eventually you know lead to uh you know the timeline here. Uh you have to appreciate that we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people that need to recruited. Uh, a budget that is close to $80 million to do a study like this. So imagine how much time it would take to uh, eventually, uh, you know, raise this money for this trial. Another economical crisis, <laughs> everything will be put in a back burn, So who knows? So I, I, I can't really tell you exactly how long it's going to take. So, but again, um, you know, I'm rather optimistic that one, if not more, than uh, these technologies will see the light and and would be a good safety net to be associated to a gluten-free diet. So even more exciting, at least to me, is this other pipeline for the prevention of celiac disease. So mm-hmm. now, you know, uh, we learn shockingly so that the fact that you are genetically predisposed to the celiac disease does not mean that the destiny to develop celiac disease is uh, is there that cannot be manipulated a matter of fact you're not born celiac um, right so you are born with a predisposition but if you become celiac or not depends on many other variables and not just the fact that you eat gluten as we believed before so we know this because you know we've been we and many others now have done studies in which we've seen that people can eat gluten without getting sick for many years and then something happened to them and eventually lose the capability to tolerate gluten, and they switch from tolerance, i.e. this health, to disease, and they develop celiac disease. What are these other elements are not clear to us, but among the many that we conceptualize, uh, the, the composition of the bacteria living in our guts, what we call now is becoming buzzwords, seems to be extremely important because they can dictate the behavior of our genes. So making the predisposition to actuality um, and, and we learned this through a pilot study that we did on babies at risk for seeded disease that we've been following from birth, tried to link uh, the onset of the disease to the change of the composition, of the microbiota, and some of the products that this interplay, uh, this crosstalk between our genes and the genes of the bacteria are, you know, produced uh, as a consequence led us really to find out, you know, a signature, so to speak, of the composition of the bacteria in our guts, and most importantly, a specific metabolite that appears months, months before that these kids lost tolerance and developed the autoimmune disease. So in other words, we have a sort of crystal ball to look in the future, and therefore the possibility to manipulate, to put them back in a state of, you know, uh, Not belligerent interaction between them, the microbiome and our own genes. Um, you know, now three weeks or four weeks ago, we launched this mega study that we call uh, CDGEM, that stands for CD Disease Genomic Environmental Microbiome and Metabolomic Study. Very ambitious study in which we are aimed at recruiting 500 kids and follow over time with the ultimate goal to rewrite the natural history of celiac disease and identify, validate these biomarkers that will tell us who later on will eventually come down with celiac disease so that we can step in and manipulate the microbiome so that they will stay in a state of tolerance for the rest of their lives. So this will be the holy grail of prevention.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And so you said that you launched this just a few weeks ago. When um, are you recruiting folks
1: for that study right now as well that we are right now in the midst of recruitment we started already we have already the first few kids have been recruited people that will be interested we have a dedicated Besides, you know the website that I told you before we have a dedicated uh, you know, website for this study that is uh, www.cdgem.org and if they go over there, there is all the description, uh, you know, in the very simple terms, of what this study is all about, who is eligible to be recruited, how to be recruited, and so on and so forth.
0: Okay. Wow. All right. That's fantastic. Um, I was not aware that you had launched that already. So that's that's wonderful. Oh yeah. Um, yep. Great. Well, I wish you all the best in that. I think there's so many people who would be um, so thrilled. Obviously, you know, to know that one of their family members who might be predisposed to having celiac would have the ability because of this kind of research to, um, you know, be tolerant for the rest of their lives and would not have to experience, you know, the full on effects of celiac disease. That would be fantastic. Um, well, exciting news in that regard. So thank you for sharing that. Um, sure. Talking about children again, we got another question that I, I get a lot, and um, and I know you just recently completed a study on this, so I would love it if you could explain this in a little bit more detail. Um, you know, folks who have celiac disease or have celiac in a first degree relative, and then they have children. When do you test an infant for celiac disease? When do you introduce gluten to a, an infant when celiac is in the family?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is another very exciting, uh, you know, uh, study that came to fruition and and we finished a very large and long, you know, prospective study. Um, When to test, of course, not before the gluten has been introduced in the diet, because without that, it will be useless to test, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, In general, we do not recommend to test, you know, um, too early because, you know, because of this study that we just completed, we realized that, you know, it is, you know, extremely difficult to have a, a clear and definite answer in terms of who is going down with celiac disease as an infant or risk. So if you have a baby uh, in your family, some of the family members have serious disease, of course, you know, this baby is a higher risk because we know there is a genetic link. So rather than 1% of the general population, it can be up to 10%. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question is when to test. Well, any time that this kid has to be, you know, tested for anything else would be a good time. Or you know, if earlier, if they have signs or symptoms that we know to be related to the disease, like you know, uh, it's not growing well, it's starting to lose weight, uh, there is you know, change in the bowel habits like uh, you know, diarrhea, constipation. I mean, these all times in which eventually um, you know the kids can be screened. Um, but you know, again, the question is you know, um, definitely needs to be done at least once before that the kids start puberty, because, you know, celiac disease can go clinically silent um, for a long time. And you don't want the kids to start puberty with an active celiac disease because this can affect his or her own uh, final growth. So definitely at least once before puberty. Now, much more complicated is the question when to introduce gluten, because, you know, we don't know for sure. And again, um, you know, the few studies out there are in general retrospective, i.e., they look at the data already out there and try to extrapolate in the real deal, and or they are, you know, involving a, a limited number of kids. So one thing is for sure we know that if we introduce gluten too early, way too early, before three months of, of age, you really increase the chance to develop CD disease. That is pretty okay. obvious. Then there is a sort of theory that said maybe that the best way is to introduce gluten between three and seven, four or seven months, in which they call this window opportunity, uh, preferably while the kids is breastfed, because that would minimize the risk to develop celiac disease. Again, this this is based on limited numbers and, and, and retrospective data out there. Many people uh, decide to postpone um, the uh, introduction of gluten um, because the feeling is the later the better. Um, mm-hmm. but once again, nobody knows if this can arm like this window theory suggests or to make a difference because we don't have real studies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the reason why 10 years ago we started this mega study uh, that follow more than 700 kids for 10 years uh, and, and to ask specific questions. When it's time to introduce gluten? Does the way that you've been delivered, the IEC section versus vaginal delivery, makes a difference? Mm-hmm. Uh, does breastfeeding indeed protect against severe disease versus a formula feeding? Uh, do infections and or antibiotic treatment during the first year of life will make a difference in tilting you to develop severe disease if you're genetically predisposed? Does your genetic makeup make a difference? You know, we know that to develop serious disease, you've got to have these HLA genes, DQ2 and or DQ8. Mm-hmm. Does one copy of these genes is less of a risk than two copies of the genes? Because of course, you know, these genes, they come from our parents. So if only one of the parents would, you know, give us these genes, you will be what we call heterozygous. But if both of them, they give us the genes, we have two copies. So what we call tecumic homozygous, does it make a difference? Mm-hmm. So these were all the questions that we ask ourselves, but this time the right way. Take these kids from birth and follow for 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. I cannot
1: give you the answer yes, because the, <laughs> the paper has been accepted to be published in New England Journal of Medicine, and we're an embargo. So you've got to be patient. Uh,
0: but hopefully no. it will be
1: published in June or in July, June. something like that. Yep. So uh, a few weeks, and you will not have the answer. But until well, we later, waited 10 years.
0: I guess we can wait another month. No, you huh? can
1: wait a few weeks. that's right.
0: Yeah. But, you, well, you know, I, we're
1: trying to answer all these questions.
0: Yeah, Well, yeah, and you've been very busy at that, indeed. So 10 years ago, you launched the study, and you asked all of these questions, and we will find out the answer in June or July when it's released. And I assume that we'll get a press release through um, Mass General as well and on the website. That's
1: right. Yeah, okay. Mass General will uh, send a press release out and uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if you have your ears on the ground you will hear about it.
0: Yeah, well I I'm sure I will be looking for it, that's for sure. <laughs> but I um I get questions about that all the time. In fact I just got one last week and was referring The patient to some other research that was already published on it, but it again hasn't been really particularly conclusive. People are, you know, as you say, it was a retrospective um, study, which is a little more difficult to um, to gather the evidence from as well. But you know, as a as a mother, you know, knowing that celiac disease is possible in your family, you know, it's it's extremely Concerning that you don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, I don't want to introduce it too early. I don't want to not introduce it. Do I need to, um, you know, breastfeed or not breastfeed or how long? And so, you know, to exacerbate all of the worries that you already have as a mother and throw the gluten-free thing in there as well because of celiac. Um, I went through that as well with both of my children. And, you know, you never want to look back and think you did the wrong thing. So I sure hope when you publish the study in June or July that that it's going to show that I did the right thing. (laughs) We'll see, but... um, I don't yep. know. Yep. Yep. Um, okay, Absolutely. so moving on to some other questions that um, that we got in um, from readers on, you know, just basically the effect of non celiac gluten sensitivity as well as celiac disease. You know, a lot of questions on thyroid function. And I know that you did another study, another example of the amazing research that's come out of the Center for Celiac Research, but another study that you were participating in, um, the production of where you were looking at, comorbid conditions and what recommendations you had for internal medicine doctors um, to test for celiac disease and to consider that as, an, as a, a, um, an indicator when they see other types of symptoms and other types of problems, one of which I know was thyroid disease. Could you speak to that study and, and where things stand with that now and, you know, what the current best practices are based on the study that you'd released on those comorbid issues?
1: Sure. So um, when we put, you know, celiac disease on, on the uh, – uh, U.S. soil, I should say North American soil. Uh, you know, in 2003, mm-hmm. with this large study, the next question was: Okay, this is a highly underestimated. Very few people, less than 5%, are diagnosed. How we find the other 95%? Should we screen the entire population, or target specifically people at risk because they have signs and/or symptoms uh, or comorbidities that we are aware um, occur with cedar disease? And, you know, in a strictly economical analysis, uh, the general population screening was not cost-effective. So we went at that time for what we call the case finding, i.e., go to general practitioners practice offices and ask them to, to uh, you know, screen for serious disease people that, again, will, will go there with the specific problems, i.e., they are not feeling well that we don't be associated with celiac disease and, um, and again we identify a series of conditions for which was very much cost effective to screen for celiac disease. The number one on top of the list turns to be indeed comorbidities with thyroid diseases. It yeah. turns to be the number one um, and lot of interesting phenomenon ever since we've done the study, the comorbidity between celiac disease and, and thyroid disease uh, really skyrocketed for reason. They're not clear to us. So, you know, with roughly four or five percent or comorbidity between uh, autoimmune uh, thyroid diseases the most frequent disease uh, of, of the thyroid so we call what we, we call Hashimoto thyroiditis and C D disease now we're talking about 60 70 percent during the same time line the comorbidity between celiac disease and other autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes did not change, 7-8%. So why now people with celiac disease that suffer much more than thyroid diseases is not clear to us. But it's clear we are in an epidemics of this comorbidity.
0: So did you say 16 to 17 or 60 to 70? Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. No, 16 to 17. 17, okay. <laughs> you know, so, wow. Yeah, 16, 17. So, and seven. this
0: is just in, in what time period did that comorbidity finding change?
1: Less, less than a decade. You know, wow. I mean, you know, it, it, it was quite remarkable. And so it, it improved from four, increased from four to four, 16, 17.
0: Wow. Yeah, and that's that's pretty amazing. Um, So in addition to thyroid disease and you mentioned type 1 diabetes, what are some other conditions that you're finding um, are really linked um, closely with a finding of celiac disease?
1: Yeah, there are many autoimmune diseases besides these two, they are the most frequent, of course. Autoimmune liver disease is another possibility, and then there are, you know, genetic conditions. So, like, uh, you know, uh, there is a comorbidity with the, within severe disease and, uh, you know, uh, you a Down syndrome. That is something that that is quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, Wilson syndrome and, and other rare, uh, you know, um, genetic conditions. Um, there are also other autoimmune diseases like Sjogren uh, syndrome and yeah. Celiac disease. So there are there are mm-hmm. definitely comorbidities that are quite intriguing to us.
0: And, you know, what we talk about all the time, particularly relevant um, now during Celiac Awareness Month, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't want to know if I have celiac disease or I don't want to get tested just because one of my family members, um, you know, has it. You know, one of the main reasons why we encourage people to get tested for it if they have symptoms or if they have a family member with it is because once you have an autoimmune disease like celiac disease, you're much more likely to have another autoimmune disease. And so if you can stop the process from starting um, anywhere along the road um, or stop it early on, then you have a better chance of not encouraging, you know, these other types of problems along the way.
1: Yeah, and again, uh, I I understand, you know, the the rationale of why people, they don't want to know. I don't justify it. It's like to say, you know, the car is making a noise. I know that I have to go to the mechanic if something's wrong, but I don't want to yeah. because I know that I'm going to stuck with the bill. Well, guess what? You continue to drive the car. The bill is going to be much higher. Um, you know, <laughs> indeed, you, you blow up the the, yeah. the, the the engine. So I mean, it, You're blow it's the whole much better to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. old transmission. So it's better to be proactive uh, than reactive right. here.
0: Right. No, I think that's a fantastic um, analogy. Um, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to try to tackle in the next five minutes or so the issue that has become really hot-button issue lately, um, which I know you're working in this area as well, as amazing as it sounds. I can't believe you can do all of these things at once. But um, we are really making some headway, from what I understand, in studying gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and autism spectrum disorder. Could you speak to sort of what you've been doing in terms of your research and any, you know, connections or things that you've learned so far? I realize it's not, you know, concluded yet, but yeah. um, just sort of where we are.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, two disclaimers here. One, uh, when they say you are doing so many things, you're talking about a group because
0: a single individual would like never be able we. to do something. It's we. It's you That's and your right. whole That's team. Right. That's right. <laughs>
1: This is a team effort, and that's the only reason why we can do so many things, because we have wonderful people working at the center. Um, the second disclaimer is that, again, uh, you know, the, the issue of, of, of autism and also other, you know, um, neurological and behavioral issues like schizophrenia always fascinate me, but I, I'm not an expert in the field, but I've been really drugged into the picture by the communities that they you know want to have answers like the one your question what gluten has to do with these conditions and since that's what we do for a living they want to us also for us there is any rational here and again this is a very polarized discussion about the role of gluten in these conditions because this is divided in these two camps the believers and not believers the believers, mm-hmm. they, they, they claim that everybody needs to embrace the diet so that this can fix all the cases of uh, uh, schizophrenia and or autism and no believers say this is, there is no rational. Mainly based on the fact that again the dog base. If you have a problem with gluten, you have celiac disease. Let's say how frequent the celiac disease in these individuals. Uh, you know, low, so they don't have a business to be on a gluten-free diet. Uh, so anyhow, as usual, you know the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. So the, the real real destiny, the, you know, the you know issue here is that you know these conditions are complex diseases. These are definitely final destination. How you got there can be different from one individual to another. For example, for autism, you know, there are no mutual you know, paths that you can develop this condition, uh genetic, metabolic, uh, you know, uh, metal exposure, oxidative stress, uh, exposure to vaccines, uh, and also food uh, sensitivities like gluten sensitivity, um, but, you know, pretending that all of them will be solved by magic bullet when we know that there are different paths that you can follow to get the, 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 the final destination, is a little bit pretentious. So, the key elements that actually is going to be the future of how we're going to do medicine, what we call the personalized medicine, is to find who went through the gluten sensitivity path and target them specifically so that eventually they can have a return on investment. That's the way to do it. But this goes back to how we diagnose these people. So back to identify, validate this biomarker so we can really stratify the population and target them. You know, for, for autism, I'm not there yet. For gluten, for schizophrenia and gluten sensitivity, we have a hint. We found one of these biomarkers um, you know the way that we diagnose celiac disease of uh, looking for antibodies a specific enzyme that is tissue transglutaminase so the TTG antibodies is the best way to diagnose people with celiac disease but this TTG comes in three flowers so to speak or isoforms as we call them TTG2 is specific for the gut and it's the one that we use for diagnosis celiac disease uh, TTG3 is specific for the skin this is the one that uh, is specific in people that have skin manifestations to disease it's the so-called dermatitis prediformis and then TTG6 is the isoform specific for the brain well we found that people with schizophrenia and gluten sensitivity they have antibodies elega- elevated against the TTG6 And now we have an NIH-funded investigation uh, in collaboration with the colleagues uh, from uh, uh, University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins, in which, you know, schizophrenic individuals with these positive TTG antibodies are specifically placed on a gluten-free diet, with some uh, quite interesting uh, early results that I found quite remarkable. But, you know, we're early age um, in this uh, pipeline. Hopefully, we'll have something similar for autism and see how this is going to pin out.
0: So you are currently doing testing on that right now, though? That's right. Yeah, well, and I just to me, honestly, to hear you acknowledging that that's even has begun and that that, that pathway is um, beaten, being beaten down now finally is wonderful because there have been just so many families that I've heard from, and I know you have as well just who have um, been really struggling to find answers for um, children with autism spectrum disorder and you know trying to figure out if a gluten-free diet would fit into that or not. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see you know where we go from there. So thank you for again for that. Um, undertaking that pursuit as well. I did want to mention, um, you know, our friend Pam King has, has wanted me to throw out there that you're going to be doing some book signings, and I promised her that I would because this is very exciting that you have this book to come out and that you will be doing some book signings. You'll be the celebrity that you are. And I know that here in the Baltimore area you'll be at One Dish Cuisine on June 3rd and Wegmans in Columbia on June 4th, and apparently you'll also be at the Atlanta Expo on May 17th doing some book signings and the CDF meeting on June 7th. So pretty exciting Mm -hmm. stuff if your listeners are in those areas. Check that out. I'm sure Pam will make sure that those signings are up on the website or somehow broadcast in social media so that folks can come out and meet you for themselves and have that special experience. But thank you again for your time today, for everything that you've done um, to date, for advancing the cause of celiac disease research and um, now non-celiac gluten sensitivity as well. Can't thank you enough, but um, on behalf of our community, thank you, thank you, thank you, and um, (sighs) thanks for taking the time today um, to come on in Celiac Awareness Month
1: well thank you Jules uh, for having me and again I want to reiterate that I'm very grateful for what you are doing including uh, your contribution to the book that was awesome I could not have done that part without you because you know arranging a pantry and make sure that safe for you is something is not uh, that I will feel experts for and uh, you've been instrumental to really educate our readership hopefully they will find that quite a, you know a useful information that got from uh, you know first class expert uh, on the topic so thank you again for helping us out
0: absolutely take care and happy celiac awareness month
1: do the same for you thank you for having me bye now uh,
0: bye bye